This is a Federal News Network podcast. Artificial intelligence is growing fast as a technology to help companies hire the people they need faster, but it also has the potential to introduce bias on a record scale. That's according to my next guest. Attorney Keith Sonderling was appointed by President Trump to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 2020, and he's made the fair use of AI a top priority. He joins me now in studio. Mr. Sonderling, good to have you in. Thank you for having me. And before we get into the AI issue, which I know is a big priority for the agency writ large, just for people that are not operating at the level of presidential appointee, when you have three people that are Republicans and two Democrats on the EEOC and the president is a Democrat and the chair is a Democrat, we had her on last week, Ms. Burroughs, highly capable lady. How does it operate? What are things like in the office of the EEOC when that situation is extant? Well, it is a unique situation, but if you look at these independent agencies, these agencies that are bipartisan, that have different appointees for different terms, staggered terms, and that's the way Congress designed these agencies, is to have different viewpoints, to bring different backgrounds to these very important, in our case, federal civil rights laws. So right now, because of the way we were confirmed and the terms, there is a unique situation at the EEOC where even though we are in a Democrat administration, there are five commissioners. Three of them happen to be Republican. And the fall of 2020, when I was confirmed, along with two other commissioners, it brought some of the most significant changes to the EEOC in years. Not only was it the first time since 2016 the EEOC had actually had five members, which is the way it's supposed to be, it's the first time in a very long time that Republicans control the majority of that. So what does that practically mean? Essentially, how the EEOC is run, the chair has the power to set the agenda, but she needs a majority vote from the commissioners to actually make any new regulations or new policies or guidelines. So right now, because of the dynamic, everything that has to be done, it needs to be done in a bipartisan fashion. And some would argue that's how the agencies are supposed to be. These dynamics where the power structures are different and not, okay, we're in a Democrat administration, it's all Democrats. That's the way Congress designed these agencies. Unlike where I was before this at the U.S. Department of Labor or Department of Justice or EPA right now, which are the political appointees are all Biden-appointed Democrats. It's different. It's unique. It really allows us to do some very interesting things in a bipartisan manner. And when you do have appointees of the two parties working in the same office, do you put silly putty on each other's chairs? You know, or, there, there are a lot of uh, gag gifts everywhere now. But we're very uh, – it's a very cordial working relationship. Look – we were all confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a reason, because we care deeply about civil rights and civil rights in the workplace and believe in these laws or we wouldn't want to do that. So we all have that base understanding that we care about these laws, that we're the agency charged with administering and enforcing some of the most, I would argue, that some of the most important laws out there, the right to work the right to make a living without any discrimination based upon protected characteristics. And by the way, what has the workload been like in terms of incoming cases to the commission? We're still waiting for the actual breakdown of our fiscal year 2021 stats. Normally, they come out in January, and then we'll be able to really dive in to see how corona and the virus affected the amount of claims that were coming in, the types of claims coming in. For instance, you know, retaliation is the number one claim at the EEOC every single year. Behind that, uh, at least in fiscal year 2020, it was disability discrimination. 
So in fiscal year 2020, religious discrimination was around 3% of all of our cases. So we'll see how that dynamic changes with the fiscal year 21 numbers, with the fiscal year 22 numbers. As we see now, religious discrimination may skyrocket much higher because of all the mandatory vaccination programs. So it's hard to tell right now just where we are in the new fiscal year with the old fiscal year data. But I think when that comes out specifically on the breakdown of cases, we'll see how the pandemic has impacted the amount and types of cases we're getting. Sure. So the change in the physical health situation of the nation could in some indirect way affect policy toward how these cases are handled and adjudicated and what is considered a discriminatory practice. Right. And also where the agency needs to go on guidance. You know, our job also is we're not just a civil law enforcement agency, just like when I was at the Department of Labor. We need to put out guidance for both employees and employers to make sure that they understand the requirements of the laws, know what their employer's obligations are to employees. But for employers, you know, know how to manage these laws and implement these laws so there's no discrimination. So I think when we start seeing the amount of claims that have come in through COVID, that the pandemic has changed, you know, it's on us to continue to give guidance and help both employers and employees with the new challenges that have come from the pandemic. We're speaking with Keith Sonderling. He's a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And just another question I had operationally, how much discussion, back and forth collaboration is there between the EEOC and the Federal Labor Relations Authority? Well, I know there's a lot of coordination with career staff in our various departments with all federal agencies on two sides. One, from a policy perspective, if there's any information that, whether it's Department of Labor or Department of Justice, that needs that implicate our laws, I know there's a lot of working together. And the same goes with Congress about giving technical assistance on our very complicated federal laws. But also, don't forget, the EEOC also enforces our laws against the federal government. So all of the individual EEO offices, there's constant communication with, uh, not just on training, but dealing with the cases coming through that federal government employees complain. So specific to the FLRA, uh, I'm not 100% sure of the amount of coordination. I just know globally that we have staff that works with all agencies. And getting to artificial intelligence, this has become kind of an abiding issue for you and the EEOC. Ms. Burroughs was on, again, speaking about that also. But you have been interested in this for a while, and you get pretty deep into the technology of it. What's the big concern? What people don't understand, you, you hear so much about artificial intelligence now across the government, you know, across industries, whether it's the private sector, whether it's the federal government, whether it's foreign government, and specifically to the laws the EEOC administers in force. Let me tell you what it's not. Everyone wants to say, oh, this is robots replacing humans. The robots are outside the door. They're finally coming in and they're going to take all your jobs and that's it. Well, that may happen one day. It's not what's happening right now. The use of AI right now is pervasive throughout the private sector. And what do I mean by that? This is just generally software that is replacing some typical HR functions. For instance, like creating a job description, screening resumes, chatting with applicants, interviewing applicants, doing performance reviews for applicants, in some extreme situations, terminating an actual employee as well. So it is being used. It's out there. In the reason I've been talking about it and raising awareness about it is because we have to address it now. Because as we'll talk about, there's so many promising aspects to this technology to potentially help remove bias from the decision-making at all stages of the employment relationship, which is why our agency exists. So I think there's a lot of good to it, but if not used properly, it could potentially violate these civil rights laws from the 1960s far greater than we've ever seen before, because a computer can do a lot more than an individual person. 
Right. And so we've seen a couple of cases where that has happened because of the training data that you would think smart tech companies have fed into their algorithms. And so what, from a policy standpoint, could the EEOC promulgate to industry such that this doesn't happen? Yeah. And if you think about it, AI has no intentions of its own, at least for now. You know, again, back to the robots replacing all of us. But for now, it's only based upon the data that's fed to the algorithms. So if you're an employer and you want to diversify your workforce or you want just to find the best candidates and you tell the computer, here are my top 10 salespeople. Let's just use that example. Go find me 100 of them. Well, if your salespeople are all of one gender, one race, one national origin, the computer is going to look for those patterns and they're just going to potentially replicate the status quo and not give opportunities to others that don't meet those protected characteristics, which you are not allowed to make a employment decision on. And, you know, there's some really classic examples of this. And these were very publicly disclosed. These are not EEOC cases um, where one company went to one of these resume screening programs and said, here's our top employees. Go find us more. And the computer said the best characteristics is being named Jared and having played high school across. And that's an example, you know, we often use because what does that show you? That That's not looking to necessarily what their best actual work skills are, which is what we encourage employers to make employment-based decisions upon. It's just on some of these characteristics. And the other very classic examples with Amazon, when they tested one of these programs, again, talking about where we are within the data set here of saying, you know, if it's potentially biased data, you'll get biased results. So in that case, they gave one of these resume screening programs the data from their last 10 years of applicants and employees from one position. And because they were all men, what happened? The computer said, well, if you went to a women's college or playing women's sports teams, you were downgraded. And again, that's not proof of misogynistic intent. And that's where, you know, trying to steer this conversation away from. It's not that these computers are intentionally discriminating because they don't like certain people of certain backgrounds. It's that the data that goes into it. We're speaking with Keith Sonderling. He's a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And it sounds like you have to select not only the data, but the fields specifically that you're going to have the algorithm look at. So like the sports played or not, I can't imagine what unless you're hiring for sports, how that would impinge on there. So it seems like almost a limitation of the data rather than more data. Correct. And it's also using AI to make sure that all these protected characteristics are removed. Let's talk about, for instance, a name. What does a name mean for somebody's job performance? Absolutely nothing. All it tells you is about potential protected characteristics, like somebody's gender, somebody's national origin, or in some cases, religion. So having AI that removes the name completely, you know, already starts you at a better position than before. And also there's programs that do the interviewing, which we'll also get a little deeper into, and that just rely on your voice. And that at the initial stage, if it's a computer taking a transcription versus an HR person actually seeing that you're of a certain national origin, a certain gender, a certain religion, or you're disabled, you know, that eliminates bias at the earliest stages. And there's a lot of studies about bias in the interviewing process. So if I'm interviewing somebody and I see somebody's actually disabled or pregnant, I'm no matter what, in the back of your head, you're thinking that, okay, this may cost me because this person has a disability and I need to make an accommodation for, or this person's pregnant and they may want leave. And that is a factor in the decision, even though it's completely unlawful and you're not allowed to do that and nobody should be doing that. But some of those things you can't unsee. But a computer can't see that. So some of the benefits of removing initial bias is very strong if AI is used properly. Got it. So do you anticipate, say, at some point EEOC with the initiative that it has going, 
uh, with respect to use of AI in employment could issue a rule around this? Or can, well, I, is it possible for a rule to be able to define so, carefully enough what kind of data people use to train algorithms? Because this is Feral News Network, I can get a little deeper into that we have very limited rulemaking authority at the EEOC. So I came from the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. Oh, they're good at it. Well, yeah. Well, we could make a rule on anything, you know, whether it's the overtime rule or certain requirements uh, for benefits, for um, wages. You know, we could really get into it. Here, it's a little different because we have very limited rulemaking authority under Title VII. So what generally happens, and you know, our example is last year we put out religious guidance about um, religious freedoms in the workplace. That was over 130 pages, that document. And prior guidance was like that as well, but it's done through a commission vote. So there is a process and it's not necessarily a federal rule, but it, you know there are different levels of guidance which we can do. But I do think you know as this initiative has come out and as you've talked to Chair Burroughs, it's very important we do that. And who are our groups here? It's, it's employees who are being subject to this technology who may not even know that a computer is making a decision, not a human. Employers who are buying these systems there's two parts to the employers, and, and this is very relevant to the federal government if they start to buy or develop these softwares too. You know, what kinds of things should you be looking at as an employer before you buy these systems? With the amount of systems out there, with the amount of money going into these systems, you have a lot of options. And everyone's promising that this is a program, if you spend money on us, it will help eliminate bias and help you with your diversity needs. And we talked about some of the examples of how that can be true and it can not be true. So what, what can employers ask these vendors from an EEOC's perspective? And then once you buy it, you can't have a hands-off approach because, you know, allowing the computer just to make decisions itself, essentially related to somebody's civil rights in the workplace, can be very, very complicated and have significant ramifications. Because under our laws, whether an employer intends to discriminate or the discrimination happens, liabilities can essentially be the same. So then it's going over what can, you know, I think the EEOC really needs to talk about what can the employer do once they buy the software to make sure that it's not discriminating. And how do you do testing? How do you make sure the, there's you know, the bias results? More importantly, also, how do we as the federal government communicate to vendors? Sure. And, and, and that's sort of the historically some of the difficult part because under our laws, specifically the EEOC, you know, we have full jurisdiction over the employers. But when you start getting out, and this is not unique to the EEOC, when other areas of the law start to affect the agency's laws, how do you communicate with them? And how do we make sure that they have best practices? So they design these systems to make sure they comply with the law so the people who are buying them are not violating the law through their systems, even though there are certainly some questions about their liability. So that's right. sort of like a, would be a great outcome out of all this. Mm -hmm. And it's a unique part in where that this technology is growing. And we can come in now, the federal government, especially in the tech world, which is all this is based out of, and say, look, we know that there's a lot of benefits to this technology. Or from my perspective, we know that this is being bought widely and it's already being used and you, know, you can't stop the train now. So how can we, the EEOC, the federal government, be at the table in a very advanced technological area and work with them on the outset to make sure that the programs are used properly, but also continually be developed with our laws? Right. So this becomes a good test bed for even other industries than employment and hiring, because the general approach you have to have in AI is to prevent whatever bias you don't want in your system whether it's personnel or some type of machinery. Which also, as you know, outside of the EEOC's jurisdiction, if you look at the FTC, they're dealing with uh, housing 
and they're dealing with you know credit. And a lot of this framework, the vendors sure. who are also developing and selling systems in that can really help achieve global compliance overall if we're all doing this on the ground floor. Right. And Jared playing lacrosse can get a good home loan rate, I guess, that, if the yeah, system is built in the absolutely. right way or the wrong way. And the other question is then that these systems need to be not only fed with data that doesn't produce biased results, this also implies you need a accountable and transparent system yeah. to make sure that you can go back and investigate what happened and understand what happened in your system to be able to adjust it. Right. To- and from the EEOC's perspective, uh, how our laws work and our enforcement works, we're going to look at the results. So if the results are results of those potentially biased inputs, you're going to see those biased outcomes. If the inputs are proper, but the AI allows you to intentionally discriminate, then also we're going to have unlawful results. So whether it's biased inputs or an actual discriminatory intent to use the algorithm in a way saying, okay, well, I have 100 applications. It's a perfect subset of this area based on gender, based on national origin. But now I want to filter out everyone who's over 40. And now I want to filter out you know, all females. So look, you actually had the right data set, but now you're using computers to scale this, somebody's discrimination, which can be dangerous. So at the end of the day, look at the results. If you're using these programs, look to see what the actual results are showing. And then you can sort of backtrack to see, well, okay, was it a biased input? I mean that input is the data, or was somebody actually inputting you know, discriminatory intent into the algorithm? So I think that's probably one of the key takeaways. All right. Well, we've got a lot of homework to do on AI, I guess. Keith Sonderling is a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.